what a treat to be here. And Paul mentioned the privilege that I had of being involved in his interview process before he came to work at the church where we eventually served together. And I have to tell you, I cannot take full credit because it was a group interview decision, but that was far and away one of the best hiring choices I have ever made in my life. And I'm sure you can attest, if you know Paul at all, you can attest to what a gift he is to any community. And so, Paul, it's, an, it's a privilege, truly a privilege to be here with you and your people. And I cannot wait to dig into the book of Ruth today, friends. That's the book that we're going to be looking at together this morning. But before we do that, I want to take just a minute to find our location here this morning. Now, the face masks begin to help us out, right? They begin to help us out. But I want to invite your imagination, your thoughts, your response, and I want to do that by giving you a lightning round of a few questions, okay? These are questions that I walked through alongside of my staff team at Hope International recently, and I thought some of these might be pretty engaging for us today, too. So I'm going to start out with the very first question is this. It's since spring break last year, I have had more blank than I wish I would have had. I want you to get your own. I mean, I know you can see my answers right there, but you'll see I've had more Zoom than I wish I would have had. I've had more cookies. I think the loaves of bread might be my favorite. <laughs> Here's the next one. Okay, and you know what? Wait on the slide. So, so you can, I want you to engage your own imagination. Since spring break last year, I have had less blank than I wish I would have had. You got it? Okay, since spring break, now give me that slide. I have had less showers than I wish I would have had. <laughs> less travel, less hugs. And here's our last one, friends. Since spring break last year, the most absurd thing I saw or heard was, I mean, friends, Come on, I mean, I feel like that should even get maybe a few chuckles, at least like inside of ourselves, right? Because spring break, or excuse me, 2020 has been the year of absurd memes and headlines and just crazy things. Did you guys see there was one meme and it got reworked several times over, but it started out like if 2020 was a candy and there's a picture of black licorice, right? Or if 2020 was a bag of chips, and I think, I mean, like, surely this is not real, but it was like toothpaste and orange juice, you know, on the front. And so here's my addition. If 2020 was a greeting card, friends, I think 2020 would be the greeting card line by a woman named Emily McDowell. Is anybody familiar with her greeting cards? Uh, there's no good card for this. It's this line of cards. It's kind of the unhallmark card line. And her tagline is, when scary, awful, unfair things happen, right? Is that like a card line for 2020 or what? I, and let me just want to share a few of these with you. First one, I wish I could take away your pain, or at least take away the people who compare it to the time their hamster died. <laughs> when life gives you lemons, I won't tell you a story about my cousin's friend who died of lemons. Does everybody have that friend who's like ready to, to re-up? You know, they're like going to do one better on your bad thing in life. Together, we can find a cure for the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> we need a cure for that phrase, right? And probably there's some Christian phrases we need to cure as well. Here's the last one. If this is God's plan, God's a terrible planner. 
no offense if you're reading this, God, you did a really good job with other stuff, like waterfalls and pandas. <laughs> okay, so I mean, that is pretty funny, but I also think if we're honest this morning, that laughter rings, it echoes back on us. It rings a little too true, right? It's knowing laughter, right? I mean, if there's anything about 2020, it is true that we are having this crazy year. And I hope, I doubt that I'm not the only one in this room who has had the sense that God has not been an awesome planner, right? Like, what the, the scale of disruption that we have seen in 2020, the scale of tragedy, it's, I mean, honestly, it's hard to wrap our minds around it, right? And, you know, it's not just the loss of life, but it's also just been the loss of normal. Does anybody feel that, right? It's like, do you remember BC before COVID when one decision really was one decision? You know, these days, one decision is like 10 decisions. Like, I don't know, like, how, is there distance? Is there mass? Like, you know, it's like everything's so complicated. Do you remember back when gearing up for a, a fall semester, was, it was just about connecting with your friends and understanding class expectations? You know, it's like we are working with such craziness in, 20, in 2020. And, you know, in the work that I do at Hope International, we're aware of so many vulnerable communities who have really taken a hit. Um, the last I saw, there was a, a sense, an estimate, that there would be 50 million people that would, be, that would lapse back into extreme poverty. You know, and this kind of vulnerability is not just happening out there in the globe, it's happening in our own communities as more vulnerable communities, specifically communities of minority, of color, are disproportionately hit. And the reality is that as we zoom out, take a moment to locate ourselves today, even before we get to the book of Ruth, I think some honest part of us is asking the question, what kind of a planner is God? Or, you know, crisis hits. Where is God's place? What is the game plan God is working in the midst of Crisis. You know, I think sometimes maybe in polite conversations, those questions don't hit the radar. But in our honest moments, we begin to wonder. Think about the first time that you had your COVID moment. Okay, I mean, everyone had this, right? Where you realize for the first time, whoa, <laughs> like this isn't just spring break. You know, this is like actually going to affect more things and bigger things and for longer. Do you have your moment in mind? Think about that moment. Now, here's what I want to ask. Where was God in that moment? Did he have a place? Did he have a plan inside of that moment? Friends, if the book of Ruth has anything to offer us today, it is this. It is that God has a place. God has a specific place where he shows up, and he has a plan. And that place and that plan is courageous love. That's right. The book of Ruth brings to us this audacious idea that courageous love, in the midst of crisis, courageous love is the place where God sh shows up, and it's the plan he's bringing to crisis. Now, please hear me. Please hear me straight. When I say courageous love, what I'm not 
wanting you to hear is romance, okay? Like, I'm not going to dispute there may be some romance in the book of Ruth, okay? But what I... What would be terrible is if any one of you, you would leave here today and think that Ruth was the Cinderella story of the Bible, as I read in one commentary this last week. Okay, Friends, Ruth is not fundamentally a love story. Ruth is fundamentally a survival story. And as a survival story, Ruth is not interested in fairy tale plot lines. It is not, is not primarily a theological lesson. In fact, there are three primary characters in the book of Ruth, and not one of them is God. In the narration that we're given in the book of Ruth, God, while he's doing a lot of things behind the scene, he will not do or say anything on stage in the book of Ruth. Ruth is also not a tricky or a technical book. Ruth is a story. The message translation that we're going to be looking at today opens up with those iconic story words, once upon a time. And like any story, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth has a lot going on. But at the heart of it is this, that courageous love is the place where God shows up and it's the plan he brings to crisis. And one of my favorite authors is a coach, a man by the name of Michael Daphne, and he defines courage this way. He says, courage equals fear times truth times sacrifice times action. And I love that definition. First of all, I love that there is a definition. Because you say courage, and I can rattle off a dozen movies and superheroes, but you ask me what it looks like or how it's defined in my own life, it's a little trickier, right? So this definition, it breaks it down. You say fear, and I can tell you about the moment last week when it washed over my body, right? Each of these elements is something we can get our minds around. Now notice, courage is not possible without fear. There's no way to be brave inside of comfort or status quo. But we wouldn't have courage if there wasn't also truth, right? Because fear alone will paralyze us without the light of truth. But truth is not just what do I feel or, you know, what's my reality? But truth, this is the place where a broader wisdom comes in, where God's word, God's people begin to speak into the realities. We might think that action would be the very next thing. You know, courage has to hit the ground. But actually, Michael warns us, and I think he's right, that before action can happen, there must be something worth sacrificing for. And he says sacrifice is the releasing of one thing for another believed to be of higher value. In other words, to be courageous, your intentional response has to be based on more than just factual knowledge. Friends, we are not going to think our way into courage. You need a bit, excuse me, you need a why big enough to create courage. Well, friends, Ruth is saturated with these themes. Fear, truth, sacrifice, action. I mean, we are only going to dip our toe into these realities. In fact, if this is at all sticky for you, I want to I encourage you, the book of Ruth is not going anywhere. Pick it up, take a journal, and just start tracing these themes. Everywhere you see fear, everywhere you see truth, just start jotting it down. But for time's sake today, what I want to do is consider two different scenes in the book of Ruth, and I want to take a couple themes at a time. 
So the first one is this scene of fear and truth. Okay, and it's, we're going to start in Ruth 1. But before we get into the plot, I need to set the stage a little bit, right? This is what any good story, there's always a backstory, right? And if we were to take the first chapter of Ruth and just wring it out, what we would find is truth and fear, or fear and truth, brutal reality. Look with me at verse 1. It says, once upon a time, it was back in the days when the judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, now I have to stop us right here. As we begin to set this stage, looking at the backstory of the book of Ruth, there are five things that you have to understand. God knows I tried to get it to three or four. No, friends, there are five things you need to understand. Three of them are right here in this first verse. And the first two pop up pretty quick. There was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem left his home to live in a new country. So there's a refugee. There's a famine. There's a refugee. The third thing that we need to know about the book of Ruth not quite as straightforward, but it's right there in the first verse. It was back in the days when judges led Israel. Do you see that? Ruth is a book of the Bible. It's the book in the Bible positioned between the judges and the kings. Does anybody remember anything about the book of Judges? Probably not, because you probably tried to repress it for all the difficult names in that book, or perhaps the destruction, the disobedience, the death that is all throughout that book. But the last sentence in the book of Judges, right before we come to the book of Ruth, gives us, gives us a sense of what was going on. It reads like this. It says, At that time, there was no king in Israel, and people did whatever they felt like doing. Okay, so here we have crisis, we have famine, we have refugee, and we don't have a people who are looking out for each other, hey, I've got your back, or hey, what would be good for us, but rather people did what they felt like doing. This is the context into which Ruth opens up. Now there's a fourth thing you need to know as well, and, and we'll be introduced to that now with verse 2, beginning with the first characters we meet in this story. Ruth 1, 2. The man's name was Elimelech, for his wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilion, all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Okay, you'll see I featured Moab, right, in that book, because that's the fourth thing you need to know. Y'all, Moab is bigger than any of the first things we've talked about already. And Moab is other and enemy. When you see Moab, I want you to think other and enemy. Here's how that works out. In the book of Ruth, Moab, or some form of that, is mentioned 12 times. In just four chapters, 12 times this is mentioned. And Ruth is also called a foreigner on four additional occasions. Okay, y'all, the author of Ruth is spelling this out. <laughs> Ruth is other, foreign, or as it will say in chapter 2 with a little bit of redundancy, Ruth is the Moabite from Moab. <laughs> okay? So do you think the book of Ruth has any relevance for our world where 
where I wrote it down, 26 million people are displaced as refugees right now. Nearly twice as many of that are internally displaced, meaning they've been kicked out of their home, but they're still somewhere within their country. Do you think the book of Ruth has any relevance for our own nation? Again, we've mentioned these, the vulnerable communities where, where there are people who have been made to feel because of the color of their skin that they don't belong here. That somehow, since the time of their birth, they're other, they're different, they're outsiders. Ruth is so relevant for us. But here's the thing. Moab in this text is not only other, it's also enemy. The book of Numbers gives a whole backstory on this. There's actually three chapters in which both God and a donkey do some talking. <laughs> but what's relevant about those chapters is that in this in this time in Israel's history, they are leaving Egypt. They're headed for the promised land. And on their way, they come, it says, to the plains of Moab. And on the plains of Moab, they are hoping for just some baseline hospitality. Like, can I tie up my camel, get a little something to drink, get a little bit of food? Well, here on, here on the plains of Moab, the king of Moab is not a fan. He looks out, he sees all these people as far as his eyes can see, and he feels threatened. And he says, you know what? No way. No hospitality here. In fact, actually, what I think I'm going to do is hire a guy to put a curse on you. Well, God ends up intervening so that a curse does not come upon the, the people of Israel, God's people, but instead is placed on Moab. So Deuteronomy 23 sums up the current relations between Israel and Moab. Beginning in verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite is to enter the congregation of God, even to the 10th generation, nor any of his children ever. Those nations didn't treat you with hospitality on your travels out of Egypt. And on top of that, they hired Balaam to curse you. Now, God intervened and turned that curse into a blessing. But look at that last sentence. Don't even try to get along with them or do anything for them ever. Right? So there is no love lost here. Here's the fifth and final thing you need to know as the book of Ruth opens, is that women in this patriarchal society were not allowed to own land. Now, friends, land is not like a little side gig luxury like maybe it is here in America. I mean, even now, it's pr a pretty big deal. It's helpful if you own a home, right? There's some wealth bound up with that. But back in these days, land was not just your home. It was your business. It was your provision. It was your safety. And in the book of Ruth, we are going to see three incredibly vulnerable people. Do you think fear and truth was popping up? You betcha. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Elimelech died, and Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. But then the two brothers, Malon and Kilion, died. Now the woman, Naomi, was left without either her young men or her husband. I love this phrase. One day, she got herself together. <laughs> she and her two daughters-in-law to leave the country of Moab, and they set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and to give them food, and so she started out. Now, friends, 
as Naomi starts out on this road back for, for, back for home, back, back to Bethlehem, there are a lot of uncertainties in front of her. But there are three things that Naomi knows for sure. Number one, she knows when she gets home, no one's throwing a parade for her. <laughs> Remember, she and her husband, they didn't just, when the famine hit, they didn't just settle in a foreign land. They settled in enemy territory. Okay, And whatever the practical necessities were wrapped up in that, you can be sure that that move was one of betrayal. The second thing that Naomi knows is that if she is in a tight spot, her daughters-in-law, these foreigner Moabites, are even worse off. And the third thing that Naomi knows is that God has not only abandoned her, He's not only not there, his hand has turned against her. Look with me at verse 8. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, go back, go home and live with your mothers. Right? She's like, this is not going to be good for you. And, and she, she, they, they try to protest, but she's, she's firm. She says, no, go back. And then at the very end of this text, it says, dear daughters, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. And then later, Naomi will underline this when she asks that her name be changed. I don't even want you to call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. The strong one has ruined me. <laughs> Friends, where is the place in crisis where God begins to show up? Where is the place in crisis where God begins to work? What is the game plan he's running with? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Ruth comes to us and says, fear and truth. This is the birthplace of courage. Friends, often Ruth says, the book of Ruth says to us, God is doing his best work in the dark, in the womb, in the tomb, in the waters hovering over creation. It is right there where God is doing work. You don't see him on stage. You don't see him doing same things, but God is actively at work. Eugene Peterson has this to say about encountering God in these gritty places. He says, it's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs, our hallmark cards, right? It is somewhat more difficult to be honest in our hurts. It is nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hate. So we commonly suppress our negative emotions, unless neurotically we advertise them. Or when we do express them, we do it far from the presence or what we think is the presence of God. Surely that was Naomi. Ashamed or embarrassed to be seen in these curse-stained bib overalls. But when we pray, hear this, we find that will not do. We must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. It is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. Hate prayed takes our lives to bedrock where the foundations of justice are being laid. Friends, I need to ask you this morning, in the midst of COVID pandemic, economic crisis, strange, masked up campuses, I need to ask you this morning, is there some way in which 
You have been hiding a hurt or a hate from God. Is there a fear or a truth that you have been pretending away? Ruth encourages us today, take a step toward courageous love, toward fear, toward truth, to invite God to meet you inside of these places. Now, Ruth does not leave us there. Ruth remembers that there's a broader equation to courage. And so what we see in scene two is a focus in on sacrifice and action. And the starring role here, the lead character, will be Ruth. Now, a quick reminder of what we have here. We have three desperate widows on the backside of famine who are grieving the loss of their husbands, or in Naomi's case, a son. And they are now pressed to negotiate what seems to be an impossible future. Naomi's decided her only shot is to return home. And she keeps saying to her daughters-in-laws, daughters-in-law, that is a hard thing to say plural, y'all. She keeps saying to these ones, hey, if you're smart, you will do exactly what I'm doing. You will go beg forgiveness for marrying the enemy. You will return home. And one of her daughter-in-laws, Orpah, initially protests, but eventually she's like, you know what? You're right. That's straight. I'm out. I'm headed back home. It's right here where we see Ruth step in to this amazing courage. You guys, this defies logic. It defies self-interest. It is profound risk for Ruth. But Ruth says to Naomi, I am pledging myself to you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stand by you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. And, what, and basically what she's saying is, Naomi, whatever happens next, it's going to happen to the both of us. Okay? You guys, the writers of Scripture don't know what to do with this. This is one of the few occasions in the Bible where the Hebrew word, which means loyal love, hesed, is attributed to a person and not to God. It's the same word in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It will chase after me. This is the picture of Ruth. She is insisting on love. And consider her sacrifice. This is a move away from what's familiar and safe. And, not, and moving toward not only what's strange, but something that's hostile. It's a move away from personal comfort toward a woman who's broken, who's desperate, who is of her own admission bitter. This is a move toward vulnerable exposure and not just once. Y'all think immigrant in the sweatshop. Think migrant in the field. This is the choice that Ruth is making to, to live into this courageous love. Now make no mistake, God will meet her there. We don't have time to look into it, but in, in chapter 2, you have never seen such abundance, such lavish provision alongside an immigrant gleaming on the edges of a field. Go back and look at that. But here's the thing. When God shows up, it doesn't all of a sudden clean everything up. And the fact is that when harvest season ends, Naomi and Ruth find themselves right back where they started, 100% vulnerable. And eventually they have, to, they have to hatch up desperate plans and Ruth has to take this step toward courageous love again and again and again. What is driving her? What is pushing her there? It's not logic. It's not her own competence or brilliance. Not safety or money or fame. Could it be the presence of Yahweh? Could it be 
that there is value in placing this bigger bet. That takes us right back to that definition of courage, doesn't it? There must be something worth sacrificing for, a why that's big enough to birth courage. Friends, I'm, I'm wondering today if God might be inviting you to consider a bet. Is there a familiar place? Maybe it's a comfort zone, a pattern in your life, a partner. You know him like the back of your hand. But somewhere deep down, there is a sense that you are holding out, that you are clinging to this lesser thing and abandoning the greater thing. We do not have time to look at all of the amazing choices and consequences that happen in the book of Ruth. Ruth makes these, what what I've been um, introduced to as a concept, these choices that choose. A choice that we make today that opens or closes other doors in the future. And there's no doubt about it that Ruth will look back on this first moment as the hinge moment of her life as the moment when this big, risky, watershed thing changed everything. This is the place where God meets us. And here's the thing. When God meets us in those places, what happens is our stories move from beyond his provision to us, from beyond communion with us. It is a call. It is a transcendence of our stories into a bigger storyline. And this is where the book of Ruth ends. I want to just read the final verses in chapter 4, beginning at verse, four, at verse 13. So eventually, Boaz, this amazing, courageous lover himself, marries Ruth. She becomes his wife. He sleeps with her. And by God's gracious gift, she conceives and has a son. And now the town women are saying to Naomi, Blessed be God. He's done this for you. Eventually, Naomi takes this baby in her, in her arms and she rocks him and she coos him and she cuddles with his baby. You guys, God's provision is not abstract. It is not waterfalls and pandas. It comes real and tangible. But not only that, it's not just provision for Naomi, but eventually look at this in verse 17. The neighborhood women started calling this boy Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And the genealogy in Matthew will pick that up, and it will trace David, King David, onto the Messiah Jesus. Friends, the place where God shows up in crisis, which is to say the place where God shows up in life, is courageous love. That's the plan he's working, and he's inviting us to get on board. Let's join him there. Amen?